Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth, chapter 1. be continuing our series in this wonderful book with which we began last Lord's Day. It's a fascinating book which teaches us and shows us how a Moabite woman can become engrafted into the people of God and even become in the line of Christ. Uh, we mentioned that we must see God's sovereign fingerprints in all of our difficulties, all of our trials that come our way. We must have eyes to see. We must see that God is at work behind the dark clouds of providence. That He is at work in our lives. There's these defining moments that happen in our life that really sometimes can change the course of our life forever. We are all on this journey through life. And if there's anything the book of Ruth shows us, it shows us that the choices and actions of our life affect the course of our life and have lasting consequences. It is the grace of God that is directing the outcome of all of these decisions by His sovereignty. Now, the book of Ruth, of course, is a beautiful love story. We'll get to those chapters soon. Um, It's a a fast-moving story. Um, There's lots of dialogue, there's intrigue, there's suspense. Uh, The author uses all of these things in in communicating to us the story of the book of Ruth. In fact, over half of the book is actual dialogue. So there's actual communication going on between the characters which tell us and show us a lot about the character of the various people in the story. Of course, one of the purposes of the book of Ruth is to show us that God and Him alone can bring blessing out of tragedy. That there is the hidden smile of God, as it were. That He is in control of all things. And if you are a part of the covenant community, nothing but blessing awaits you. Of course, another thing that it shows us is that the engrafting of the Gentiles, that the Gospel is for all people. And it's wonderful how through the Old Testament we get little glimpses of this, don't we? Right? We see, we see little glimpses. Rahab, the prostitute. We see Ruth and, and other examples of these Gentiles being grafted in and being a part of the covenant people of God. But ultimately, the book points to Christ. We'll get to that section of Boaz being the kinsman redeemer. And, and really, Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one that comes and rescues and delivers His people by His mighty hand. So let's read the text. We're going to take up verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. So follow along with me as I read. Then she arose, that is, Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, her and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. But they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my wombs that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. 
Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I had, if I have had hope, and if I could even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown up? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, and all the city was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's go before him and ask his blessing during our study time now. Our Father, we do ask that you would meet with us now. Lord, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of this wonderful text. Lord, that we would see beyond the words, that we would see your purpose in our lives, in our context in which we live in. Lord, we ask that you would indeed remove distractions and that you would give us close attention unto your holy, infallible, perfect word. And we ask in the precious name of Christ. Amen. So just by by way of review, the first five verses, there was no dialogue. It was really just setting the setting, as it were. uh, We were told that that this happened in the days of the judges. What were the days of the judges like? They were bad days. (laughs) They were spiritually barren days. These were dry days. Um, There was a famine. The Lord had sent another famine to Bethlehem. The irony of crisis is that Bethlehem means house of bread. And so here Bethlehem is experiencing a famine contrary to its very name. Now, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, decides to leave the promised land to go to the greener pastures of Moab, which apparently was not experiencing a famine at the time. So they had two sons, they took their family, and they went and they left. Sounds logical. But it wasn't the best decision. God had delivered Israel. He had brought them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This was God's special provision for the covenant community of Israel. And so though they were experiencing a famine, as it were a spanking from the, from the hand of God for their rebellion against Him, they had no business leaving the promised land, but rather to repent and cry out in mercy that the Lord would be pleased to send rain and bring a harvest. Of course, they go off to Moab. Elimelech dies. The two sons marry Moabite women. And after ten years, the sons die as well. And so now you have three widows. 
there in the land of Moab. By the way, the indication that there were no descendants after them being married all that time was a sign of God's displeasure upon the way they were living. And so the women are emptied. They're, they're left destitute of all of their resources. And so this road to Moab, which had, through rose-colored glasses, prosperity and economic security became a road to crisis. It became a road of chastisement and a road of being filled with discouragement and despair. Ultimately, it would lead Naomi to becoming a bitter woman, as we will see. And it's those types of defining moments in our lives that that, that we can do, that that sometimes we make decisions that that, that help us. What's going to be the best thing for the security and for the comfort of my family? And sometimes they appear very logical and packed full of wisdom, but we ignore the inspired scriptures, we, we ignore, ignore what the Lord has revealed to us, and we often pay for those mistakes in one way or another. So the road to Moab seemed best in Elimelech's eyes, but instead of trusting God to provide, um, he goes. And it's a picture of worldly wisdom. And we too fall into that all the time. We think the grass is greener on the other side. We, become, we grumble and we despair and, and we complain. So the title today is very simply, From Pleasant to Bitter. From pleasantness to bitterness, we'll see that somebody had become bitter even though her name meant pleasant. There's a picture of God's grace in verses 6 and 7, we'll see. And then we have three extended dialogues of which we'll look at each one of those. The first is with Naomi, with the the widows, her daughters-in-law. The second is between Ruth and Naomi. And the third is between Naomi and the women of Bethlehem. Most noteworthy, of course, in here is Ruth's big, bold profession that she gives in verses 16 and 17. Some of the most cherished words in all the Bible. So we'll look at this under three heads. You should have received an outline in your, your bulletin there. First of all, the Lord is merciful to his people. I had in my notes, again, because of his long suffering, his, his, his loving kindness towards his people. He's kind. In verse 6, we're, we're told she arose and returned because she had heard, even from the land of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. The Lord is compassionate to Bethlehem. He visits them. By the way, there's no mention that the nation repented and now the Lord blessed. There's no mention of that. He is kind. He's compassionate. He sends food. Sends rain for the barley harvest. The author really is painting a picture of God's grace here. And Naomi was able to hear a glimmer of hope, to hear some good news in the midst of grief and despair that was wearing on her as each day would pass by. Now, it doesn't come through in the English, but if you see here where it says she had heard that the Lord had visited His people, that word is a very strong covenantal term. It it, it speaks to the idea that the Lord attended to His people. It's as though there's a crying baby in the next room your baby is crying and, and, and there's something wrong and you can tell it's not just a cry of falling asleep or whatever. And you come in and you attend to the child and you feed it and you change it. That's how the Lord treated His covenant people. It's a covenantal term that speaks as Yahweh as their covenantal head who comes to provide for them. Another translation would be that the Lord intervened on behalf of the covenant people of God or came to the aid of. 
So it's a very powerful word. It's a picture of God's grace. The same word occurs in Genesis 21 when Sarah is barren and it says that the Lord came to her and that she conceived. The Lord came and attended to her, came to the aid of her so that she could conceive and bear a son. Of course, the object in verse 6 is who? His people. His people. And so Yahweh provides bread for survival, physical bread for survival. Again, a picture of God's grace. But what is, it's only just a picture. It's a type of the, the bread of life that would come to us in the new covenant. The Lord's future provision of the bread of life. Jesus Himself said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger. He who believes in Me will never thirst. It's a picture of, of Yahweh feeding His now new covenant people of God and feeding them as it were with Christ Himself as we feed upon Him by faith. As we trust in Him. And so, when we hear the words of Christ, come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for our souls. Our hearts rejoice. We rejoice. And so Naomi, in response to hearing about this, returns home after several long years, at least ten years. There's three verbs that emphasize her determination to leave that are in verse 7. That she departed, that she went, and that she returned. And by the way, the word return is a key word throughout this, the whole chapter. You'll see it repeated several times. It's the same word in Hebrew for repentance, but it's not meaning necessarily repentance now. It's just a returning or a turning. And so we'll see that repeated. So let's move on. Naomi tries to reason with her daughters-in-law to dissuade them from coming along with her. Why does she do this? Well, Naomi herself has been an alien in a foreign land. And so if the Moabite women, her daughters-in-law, go with her to Israel, what will they be? They'll be foreigners. They'll be aliens in a foreign land for them as well. And so she recognizes life would be hard for them in the land of Judah. It would become exactly like she was, a widow in a foreign land. And so her first speech in verses 8 and 9, we see her, there's a, there's, a, there's a firmness there, but there's also a tenderness that we see at this point. Let's read it again. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each one of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of your husband. And then she kisses them. There's a tenderness here. There's a firmness. Go and return to your mother's house. Um, widows with no family and no, no means, no descendants to provide for them meant destitution. It meant alienation oftentimes. Again, like we mentioned last week, there's not the, the quick welfare system where she can just collect the check and it be sent to her little hut. No, it meant being destitute. It meant often a life filled with difficulty. And she knows that it's going to be hard enough to provide for herself, to be able to feed herself and to clothe herself, much less two extra mouths to feed and two extra bodies to clothe. And so she realizes this. Furthermore, it would be hard for Moabite women to remarry in the land of Israel. Right? Not impossible, but difficult. Much more difficult than if they were to remain in Moab. And so Naomi, as it were, sees that it's really a path to emptiness. 
for these women and so encourages them. Go home to your mother's house. You'll be able to remarry. You're of marriageable age. Go home there. Certainly there's a provision in the law that if a man um, died and didn't have any descendants, that his brother could marry um, her or her descendant if it was a, a daughter. And so that's in Deuteronomy 25. Um, here, but, but, but the idea of marrying a foreigner would be very unlikely, and whether Naomi even remembered that is questionable. So for Naomi, even on a personal note, no doubt now knowing that going to Moab was the wrong choice, <laughs> she shouldn't have went, um, but knowing that, having her Moabite daughters-in-law there is a constant reminder of her sin and how she went astray would be very difficult. But what's remarkable in here, the touch of kindness, is how she cries out to the Lord that the Lord would bless them. It's, and Naomi calls for Yahweh to bless these foreign women, and she gives a double blessing there. At the end of verse 8, you see it, may the Lord deal kindly. That's that word said. That's that covenantal term of loving kindness, long-suffering, of which is filled in the book of Ruth. This is the first time it occurs. And so she's praying that may the Lord's covenantal kindness be upon you. She prays a double blessing for them. And her words indicate that God's blessings go out beyond the borders of Israel and can even bless foreigners. So in verse 9, she prays for rest and security that they would be spared of the life of which she has had to go through. And so they weep loudly. And in verse 10, what do we see? They're both willing to still continue on with her. Naomi has not convinced them to go back, at this point at least. In verse 10, no, but we shall surely return with you. And so in verses 11 to 14, there's a a, a longer dialogue. In fact, the longest speech from Naomi in in the whole book. And she gives three arguments of why they should not come along, trying to dissuade them from coming back or going with her to Judah. And you'll notice each one of them begins with, return my daughters, return my daughters in verse 12, and in verse 13 be, know my daughters. First, in verse 11, she asks two rhetorical questions to challenge their reasoning. Look what she says. Why should you go with me, and have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? That's her first line of argument. Why? Two rhetorical questions. Well, in her second argument, she answers her rhetorical questions. Look in verse 12. Go, for I am too old to have a husband, and if I said I have hope, and if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? And so essentially what she's saying is, I am too old to remarry, even if I had a husband. Would you really wait 15 to 20 years for these sons to grow up? No. And then in verse 13b, she begins with an emphatic no. And this is one of the key verses that we want to look in on. No, my daughters... For it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Now that's the New American translation. Some of your versions have, it is more bitter for me. Now she's exposing what's really in her heart. Naomi had become a bitter 
old woman. She'd become bitter. She, she says, no, it's more bitter for me. And then she even blames God for her afflictions. Why? Of all of this stuff that has come upon her. Actually, from a theological sense, believing in the sovereignty of God, her theology is right, right? Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of His will. But the problem here is that she had become bitter in the midst of it. So you think, here's a woman that's a Jewish woman, grew up among the covenant community of people, and what kind of testimony is she giving to these Moabite women? By the way, we're not told how the sons were raised. We're not told much of the home life during all those years in Moab. But right now is the defining moment where she could be saying, yes, we're going back to the land of promise. We're going back to where Yahweh, who is the one true God and cares for His people. And I long that you would see Yahweh, that you would submit to Yahweh, that you would leave your gods and come and follow my God. But she doesn't trying to dissuade them. and It's exposed. Why? Because she had become bitter. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. What kind of advertisement, as it were, are you for Christianity? What kind of thirst are you generating in others that would cause them to think twice and say, yes, He follows the one true God. I want to know more about that in your workplace, in your family? Are you demonstrating, are you, is your testimony a good one that demonstrates that you indeed follow the one true God? Well, Naomi, instead of repenting of her sin, what does she do? She accuses God of injustice, doesn't she? It's exactly what she's doing here. Well, in verse 14, we see for a second time, they lifted up their voices and wept again. There's something that re- remarkable that happens in the middle of verse 14. There's a change here. There's a radical change. Orpah seems to be persuaded by Naomi's arguments. And she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and turns back. But notice what the text says. It says, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. In stark contrast, Ruth has a totally different attitude and clings to Naomi. Now our second point, Ruth gives up all for Naomi and ultimately Yahweh, as we'll see. But first, we're told here that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and went back. She makes a decisive choice to return to Moab. She reasoned like... Naomi did perhaps 10 years before with her husband, Elimelech, that that Moab looked more appealing. Ruth decides the narrow way, but Orpah takes the broad way. And if you think about it, it is the most logical, reasonable choice. That's the land where she grew up. That's where she has family. She has contacts. She has someone to care for her. She has prospects for marriage. Perhaps other high school sweethearts or something like that, but she's, she's got prospects there. And so it's a reasonable choice for greater security, more prospects for the future among her family and friends. But sadly, the natural, sensible choice to carnal minds is often the road that leads to destruction. 
It's the broad way that leads to destruction. And by the way, we're not told anything else about this woman in the entire Scriptures or this book. We don't know what has become of Orpah. We're not told what happens to her. We can probably speculate to some degree that she went to her her land in Moab and remarried and had children and had a, quote, happy life. There's no reason to think otherwise. Otherwise, the author would have probably shed some light on that. She might have had many children who grew up and supported her into her old age, and she had a full, rich, happy life according to the world's standards. But brethren, she missed one thing. She missed what was best. A living relationship with the living God. You see, it's not enough to have all the external comforts of this life. The big bank accounts, the retirement accounts, many children that respect you as an older person if you've missed out on a relationship with the living Lord. She missed out on the pearl of great price. What do you want out of life? Is it just external happiness? Is it just having all these comforts and these securities? Or is it a relationship with the living Lord? A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the way of the cross is that we deny ourselves for the sake of the kingdom of God. You see, it's like the gospel that Joel Olstein preaches. Orpah wanted her best life now. And that's what she chose. She wanted her best life now rather than Ruth being willing to wait for the future, being able to wait and to see what will come to her in God's providence. And ultimately, the ultimate reward in glory. So, Orpah turns. It says in verse 15 that... Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. And so she turns and she goes back to her gods. Now you have to understand, it's not as though she had a collection of gods sitting on an altar at her house or something like that. But the the, the people of Moab worshipped many gods. Chemosh was the primary god that they worshipped. They're they're, um, a patron of, of protection. But... She went back to worship her gods. And in biblical times, nations were recognized by their race, by their land, and by their deities. And so when it says that, it's saying something about her character. Orpah's decision, of course, is set in huge contrast before us with the resolve of Ruth. Willing to risk everything. One lives by faith, Ruth. The other by sight, the greener hills of Moab and the greater prospects. There are many Orpahs in the church today. And by the way, they, they, we don't know how far they went. It's about a three-day journey, but they did go some point before this dialogue began. Maybe it was a half a day's journey. We don't know how far it was, but there's several in the church today who will come to the very borders of the promised land or to the very edge of salvation and then turn around and go back. As it says in 1 John, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. You see, it's not enough to come to the borders of the church or to the back pew or whatever and to come close to the people of God without repenting of your sin and coming in faith to Christ. You are lost. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's that character, Timorous, if you're familiar with that book, 
who's progressing on the way to the celestial city, a picture of heaven, and, and, and he sees lions in the way, and he gets fearful, and he turns, and he comes back, and he says, that's it, I'm done. This pathway is dangerous, I'm done. Of course, when Pilgrim gets there, what happens? You remember? Man comes out with a light and says, come on, there's lions there, but they're chained. If you walk down the path of this lantern, they cannot harm you, and he walks forward in faith. Temerous came close, wouldn't believe that. Turned around and went back. Some have some value uh, for Christ. They think He's a good teacher. They, they think the, the, some of the teachings are good and relevant for them today. But yet, it comes short of salvation. May Orpah be a warning to all of us. Secondly, we see Ruth gives up all for Yahweh. Are you willing to go against worldly wisdom to do what is right? Ruth was a nobody. She's got nothing. It's not as though she's bringing baskets of jewels and chests of diamonds and gold. She's got nothing. She's a poor widow following her mother-in-law. Ian Duguid in his commentary says, she, Ruth knew that she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. She knew she wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be, hey, welcome to our city, come on in. And we'll see that as it plays out when we get there. But Ruth clung to Naomi. By the way, another very strong word here. It's a very word that's used for the bond of marriage in Genesis 2.24. It's speaking of that bond that's a covenantal commitment of loyalty It speaks of being glued to another person. When the two shall be one flesh, they become glued together. That's the term that's being used here. It's not a marriage. I'm not saying that. It's that strength of that term that her resolve was that strong as it would be at a marriage covenant. So the second dialogue here begins with Naomi telling her in verse 15, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her God's Return after your sister-in-law. Perhaps Orpah's about a couple hundred yards down the road and still in eye shot. And she tells her to return for a fourth time. Return, Ruth! What's wrong with you? Are you thick-headed? Return after your sister-in-law. Go! But we know that sometimes those choices when we know we're making the right choice. It's like, it reminds me of Joshua. It says, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a choice that one makes. There's a crossroads that one comes to where a decision has to be made. And I'm not saying a decision for Christ and now I'm saved and that's it. Boy, that was easy. What I'm saying is decisions to cut off right hands, to cut off sin, to repent of one's sin, to come and see Christ as a beautiful Savior. These are the crossroads that we must not take lightly. And Ruth's speech here in verse 16 and 17 is the climax of the passage. Uh, It really dominates here. Let's just read it again. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Let's just, we'll pause there. We'll take it one phrase at a time. 
<clears throat> by the way, there's three main thoughts that, that Ruth gives, but it's introduced by this command. It's an imperative. Do not urge me to leave you. The word leave means to forsake or to abandon. It's as though Ruth feels some sense of obligation to her old, weathered, as it were, mother-in-law. And she's going in her weakness back to her people with egg on her face, as it were, to return. It's a beautiful section of Scripture here. And by the way, with each one of these phrases, Ruth adds to her level of commitment. Then she adds to that. And then she adds to that. You may think of one of these high-stake poker games where somebody just keeps raising and raising and raising. She's adding to the stakes, okay, each with each phrase. Let's pick it up again. And she says, Where you will go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I shall die, and I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. She keeps adding to each one of these, and and perhaps the most impressive phrase here from a Moabite mouth is, is simply at the end of verse 16. It's four words in the original. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. It's four simple Hebrew words, and that is a commitment. That is a a picture of repentance, breaking with the past, and a devotion to the Lord. And by the way, it's a costly decision for her. Like Abraham, she leaves everything. All of her former hopes comes completely empty-handed. Like Abraham was told to go to a new land but she has hope in God's promises. She came to the Lord with no earthly incentive. That is, it's not as though it meant there's a castle waiting for you in Bethlehem. Boy, you should see Naomi's house to where she had extra motives to go. There was none of that. There was no carnal motives involved. She decides that God is a better husband for her than any Moabite husband the true God of Yahweh, of which, of which perhaps she heard about in that household and Moab many times. We do not know. But at the end of verse 17, this final oath just gives the whole statement such potency, and, and it's a pledge of full commitment where she almost says, may the Lord, it's almost like a prayer, may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. You see this commitment Radical commitment to Naomi and ultimately to Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, are your relationships marked by this type of commitment? We live in the Facebook era where our friends can be around the world and we see a picture here and there and we see a little post that they're having some nice Colombian coffee or something and we say, ooh, that's nice. Is that a commitment of friendship? A commitment of friendship means sacrifice. Think of it in the marriage context. A commitment to a spouse when you enter into the marriage covenant is all important. A willingness to forsake anything that would dare break that relationship. It's a lifelong commitment of laying everything aside for that person. McLaren said when Ruth threw herself on Naomi's withered breast and sobbed out her passionate resolve, She was speaking the eternal language of love. And it really is. It's such a picture of devotion and love. 
Now, we've seen three types of love in the book of Ruth already. I'll remind you, but the very beginning, of course, Elimelech and Naomi, uh, what was that? It was well-intentioned for the economic good of my family, but it wasn't biblical, <laughs> right? They were told to go to the promised land, stay in the promised land. We saw Orpah. It was an emotional love. She came part way, but there was no depth, like the shallow ground here in the parable of the soils. Springs up at first, but when the winds of persecution, and the sun persecution comes, it withers away. And then the love like Ruth has. A deep covenantal love that's unconditional. It's God-centered. It's, it's a love that's not a mere emotion, but it's an unconditional lifelong commitment for the good of the other person. Brethren, this is the kind of love that marriages so desperately need in our day and age. Why do you think the divorce rate is so high? People don't understand a marriage commitment is this type of love. This is the kind as well, kind of love that the church needs. Instead of this willy-nilly, I'll take a little bit of this church, a little bit of this church. No, it's a commitment not only to love the Lord like this, first and foremost, but to love one another like that for the sake of Christ. It's a reflection of the great love that we've received. That picture of the, the father there and, and the prodigal son running out to embrace his wayward son. Brethren, when we come to the cross, when we come to faith, when we cry out to God and we say we want to be saved, we come just like Ruth, empty-handed. We've got nothing. We've got nothing to offer to Him. We come as Moabites. We're Moabites by nature, having no righteousness of our own. We're born outsiders, just like Orpah and Ruth. There is no good in us. The Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. That we can't even come to life until the Spirit quickens us. And when we see Christ by faith as He's preached through the Word of God, as He comes forth from the pages of Scripture, and we believe and we hate our sin and our sin is exposed, and we believe by faith we become born again, as Jesus teaches in John chapter 3. And then we become the children of God. What a glorious thing. But I want you to see one other thing in this section. Look at verse 18 with me. We're just coming off the heels of this beautiful profession, confession of Ruth. Look at verse 18. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, this is Naomi, she said no more to her. That's remarkable. She simply does not respond to Ruth. There's no response to that. Nothing but death will part me. I will be with you. I'll be by your side. I'll never leave you. There's nothing but a hard silence. We would expect something like a, thank you, my daughter-in-law. Thank you for your commitment to me. Thank you for being willing to walk this hard road along with me. For me to be able to put my arm over your shoulder as we go on this journey back to my land. Thank you so much. Or something at least as a, as a Jew, what a great professional faith to Yahweh. <laughs> but there's nothing but hard silence. And as Ian Duguid points out, simply put, she could not give a response because she did not have a response. She did not have a response because she had become bitter. So, and that takes us to our next, our last point. Having seen the Lord's mercy to his people, Naomi reasoning with the daughter-in-law, Orpah going back, 
Ruth's commitment. I ask you today, are you bitter towards God? Or are you bitter towards anybody? Do you feel as though life has dealt you a bad hand and that your trials are all God's fault? We're introduced to a new scene here. There's there's additional characters. There's the women of Bethlehem. And we're going to see that in a moment. Actually, it's interesting. Whatever happened on the rest of that journey, we're not told. There's nothing but a hard silence for the rest of that journey, however long it was, a couple days or whatever. But the city is stirred. Look in verse 19. But they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, you might say, well, why was the city stirred? Did they blow trumpets as they walked in? Were they banging cymbals around or whatever? No, it's a small town. Visitors were relatively rare in that day and era. And and so as they came to Bethlehem, somebody had wrecked it. Is that, could it? Could it be Naomi? You know, and, and the hubbub started, and it's like there's a buzz, and there, it's like the city hummed. But I want you to notice with me, who do the women notice? Naomi. Does it say, is this Ruth and some companion that's with her? They don't even acknowledge that Ruth is there. Is this Naomi? Now, why would they ask that question? Well, first, she's left many, many years ago. Usually when somebody's gone for an extended amount of time, like 10 years plus, you just kind of, well, we'll probably never see them again, right? So that's one thing. But I think there's a second reason. I think she aged a lot. I think maybe those who knew her recognized that it was her, but could not believe how she aged from this hard life that she had. You know, some people, when they age 10 years, it's, it's as though they've aged 20 years with evangelism ministry. When we go out and sometimes we'll talk to homeless people and you're talking to them and you find out they're 28 years old and you think, I would have said 48 or 50 because they look so old. Because life has been so hard. They've lived such a hard life. Now Naomi wasn't homeless, but this difficult life in Moab no doubt had inscribed and marked her face with deep wrinkles so that the people were asking, is this really her? It's a picture of when you leave the promised land, when you leave God's blessings, when you go outside of the circle of blessing, like we teach our kids, outside on your own, then it's dangerous. And it could come back to bite you. Verse 20, the hard life in Moab made Naomi very bitter. Look at what she says. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? You see, it's not as though Naomi is returning with a broken and contrite heart right now. She's coming as a bitter woman. She knows it's the right thing to do, but she's bitter. She's going through the motions. She vents her anger in public and wants a new name. Do not call me Naomi. What does that mean? Pleasant but call me bitter, Mara. One good thing she does, she gives the correct diagnosis to her spiritual condition (laughs) with those very words. She really does. She's bitter. Moab, the green lands of Moab, had turned to a dry desert place for her. She's like the prodigal daughter. She's returning physically, 
but not yet spiritually there. And she gives four accusations against God. Um, the, the, the title for God, Shaddai, uh, occurs twice and then Yahweh twice. But she accuses him of dealing bitterly with her. At, at the end uh, of this little section, she, uh, she says, The Almighty has afflicted me. She, she begins to blame God that I'm coming back empty and I left full. Well, really, if you were so full, why did you leave to begin with, right? So there's, there's all kinds of fallacies in her reasoning. And then you think back in our Scripture reading in Exodus 15. I hope you were listening to that. The Lord had just parted the Red Sea, bringing a mighty deliverance to the people of God. He's bringing them into the Promised Land. He's rescuing them under the oppressive hand of Egypt. And immediately the people grumble at the water that is provided. And we're told, why? Because it was bitter. And the place was named Marah. A bit later, God provides the, the, the means for the water to be sweet, which is all kinds of symbolism. There's a wood thrown in there and it's made sweet, sweet a picture of the cross. We don't have time to look at that. But then immediately after that scene, just a couple verses later, they're brought to an oasis. Twelve springs and 70 date palms in the middle of the desert. And so God's people often grumble. They grumble about a circumstance that we have today without thinking of God's faithfulness of what He has for us tomorrow. Maybe you've experienced hardships in your life. Maybe you've experienced disappointments. Maybe you have been tempted to become bitter. What is bitterness? We should identify it at least. Well, literally it means to have like a a nasty taste, right? Taste something bitter before? It's nasty. You kids, when you're sick, well, these days, almost all medicine is all sugared up and made sweet, but in the old days, when you were sick, no, this is, this is good for you. Open up, and the kid would make that ugly face, right? Because medicine tastes bitter. Well, bitterness can set in with how you handle the circumstances that are in your life. The different providences, the things that happen in your life, Throughout the course of the day, throughout the course of a week and a year, bitterness can set in. You see, a prolonged and extended time of grumbling and complaining will lead to that settled condition of what we call bitterness. And it is. It's a settled condition. You've grumbled and you've complained so much to where you've just become that type of person. I've done lots of nursing home ministry, retirement home ministry, I can tell you, when you visit people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s, and even 110s, that so many people, that's a settled condition. They are settled in their bitterness at life and how life has dealt them this hand, so to speak. Ultimately, it's an affront to Almighty God. You see, those who are bitter do not respond properly to the providence of God in their life. You see, God had been so good to Naomi. He's bringing her back from the foreign land back into the promised land. They were kept safe as two women on a journey that would be dangerous during those times, kept safe and brought back to Bethlehem. They're come back at just the right time when there's going to be an abundance of food. And yet, she is bitter. The reason why one becomes bitter is not because of what happens to them necessarily. It's their response to what happens to them. 
So think about it. When these difficulties, when dark providences come, what is your response? Is it an opportunity to grow in grace? To try to beg and to see, Lord, what good do you have for me in the midst of this situation? Or is it a resolve to just become bitter and to kick against the goads? Do you struggle with bitterness? It's sad. In the counseling room, there are people that have struggled with bitterness for many, many years. And if you don't deal with it and nip it in the bud and mortify it on a daily basis, it will grow into this monster that's like Sherman Oak. (laughs) A huge root of bitterness. When you could have pulled a little weed out like that with your fist if you got it early, now you need chainsaws. Now you need heavy equipment to pull out the root of bitterness. Learn to trust your God. He's a covenant God. If you're a Christian, He's got great love for you. He cares for you. And recognize His sovereign hand in all things. That He really does work things together for good to those that love Him. Learn to be a thankful person. Not just the fourth Thursday in November. (laughs) But learn to cultivate a, a spirit of gratefulness. An attitude of gratitude for even the small things in your life. Well, very quickly, two points of application today. First of all, will you submit to God's will in your life? Do you have a commitment like Ruth, an unwavering commitment to follow Yahweh, to be with Him? Whether you're abounding or whether you're in need, do you have that commitment? Do you have a commitment to submit to His sovereign hand in your life no matter what you're going through? We sang that song earlier. I hope you were listening to the words. Blessed be your name. Now those words are packed. We don't have time to unpack that. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful where the streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. In the fourth fourth verse. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When darkness closes in, Lord, I will say. And then you give, you take away. You give, you take away. My heart will choose today. Blessed be your name. Powerful words. Uh, Did you sing those and just not even pay attention to the content of those words? Oftentimes we can That's why being engaged in spiritual worship is so important. Do we have that attitude? Just like Job, God often brings us to bitter, empty, difficult trials. He empties our hands, the things we're so desperately trying to cling on to. He bursts our hands open and empties us of everything that we want to put our hope and confidence in. But for the child of God, He does it that He might fill your hands with blessings. Even as we see Job at the end of the book, he's blessed beyond what he was blessed than what he had at the beginning. Naomi had no idea what good the Lord had in store for her. She's bitter. She's mad. She's angry. You see, it is the gospel that's the answer to Naomi's need and emptiness to see God's greater purpose and plan. And, and, and she did not see it. The gospel affirms to us as well that God does have our best interests at heart. 
In fact, God demonstrated His own love toward us in that Christ died for sinners. Secondly, very quickly, do you have concern for the Moabites around us? You might say, well, I was one of those that went all through this neighborhood. I didn't see any Moabites. <laughs> what I'm talking about is do you have concern for those that are outside the covenant community who are all around us in our workplace, in our neighbors, around the church here? You see, Naomi seemed to have little spiritual concern for Ruth and Orpah. And we can make the same mistake with those outside the covenant community, the person your desk is sat right next to in your workplace and think, well, they wouldn't have any interest in, in, in the things of God anyway, so I just won't share. I just won't present the gospel, which is a treasure and earthen vessel of which we have a mandate to take the gospel to the nations and even to our neighbors around us. Woe to us when we withhold this gospel from those who need to hear it. And God's great grace brings back prodigal sons and daughters no matter what they've been through, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've squandered, and brings them back home. And for us, our ultimate destination is heaven, to be with Jesus face to face. And if you're a child of God today and you've lost your way, and you've, you've, you're not sure what the Lord is doing in your life, and you've given your life to sin, repent of that sin and turn and come back. You see, each of us have gone astray just like Naomi, searching for the bread that does not satisfy and trying to, 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 to cling to the things of this world. But it's not as though God just cuts us off in His anger and sends us to hell. No, He has judged His Son in our place. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Jesus Christ stood in our place to take the wrath that we deserved when we would run after the bread that does not satisfy. And if you're here today and you've never heard the Gospel before, I plead with you that you'd repent of your sin and look to the Lord to have mercy on you. There's nothing you can bring. Don't, in your mental suitcase, think of all the good things you've done and how God would be so blessed to have you in His kingdom. Rather, like we sung earlier, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Look to him today. If you are outside of Christ, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for this picture of your gospel and a picture of divine grace to unworthy sinners. We thank you for an outsider that has believed and embraced you, and Lord, we thank you for that picture, and we pray that you would work in each of our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to put to death bitterness, and put to death the things and our, our desire for the things of this world, that we would be satisfied with you, that Christ would be enough. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.